This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm the J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing, um, and I'm here to go through our show, as we always do, Marketing Matters. We're coming to you live from our homes, <laughs> but we're on Zoom. Um, and until we can be back live in our studio and do our show as we usually do, used to do, although maybe we're in the new normal now. Uh, we're bringing you a combination of fresh content and the best of Marketing Matters segments from 2019 and 2020. But every so often we get to have a new live show, live on Zoom, and this is one lucky day today. So we have two guests, two new guests, and we'll come up with brand new content today. Our first guest is Emily Hayward. She's the co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler, and she's the author of a book called Obsess, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of Red Antler, but it's one of the most innovative branding agencies. I guess it's still an agency. We can ask her if she calls herself an agency now. And they have been responsible for some of the really innovative brand messages and brand meanings like of Allbirds and in the past brandless. And she can talk a little bit more. I'll let her, do, she'll do a better job talking about what her agency has done and what her book is about. So we're very excited to have her here for the first half hour. And in the second half hour, we have Jessica Wool, who's a reporter at Ad Age. And she's gonna talk about the recent surge in uh, CPG firms abandoning questionable brands like Mrs. Butterworth, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's, and phasing out those racial brand images and what all of that means. So it's a very interesting show. Very excited to have Emily here. And let me reintroduce her and then welcome her to the show. Again, Emily Hayward is the co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler. And this is a very, very innovative agency. Look it up online if you haven't heard of it. Um, and she's helped founders develop purposeful, strategic visions for their startups. And she's led branding efforts of top companies such as Casper, Allbirds, I know Allbirds is a Wharton one, so I'm very familiar with Allbirds, and Box. But she's also the author of this new book called Obsess, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. Hello, Emily, and thank you so much for being here. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So why don't you like take, take, do a better job introducing your agency than I did and tell us a little bit about your, your, what your philosophy is and some of the really innovative stuff you did for some of these digitally native vertical brands. Absolutely. Well, I think you did a fabulous job, but I will just further elaborate. Um, so a little bit of relevant background is that my co-founder, JB, and I actually started our careers working in traditional advertising at traditional agencies. You know, our jobs were coming up with big national TV campaigns for big global brands. Um, a lot of CPG stuff, a lot of brands that you might find, you know, in a drugstore or a grocery store and learned a ton through that process but started to feel like we were solving the wrong problems. You know, we felt like we were being asked to come up with new things to say every year about products that really hadn't changed and might not be so relevant anymore to today's consumer. And we couldn't affect the product itself. 
So in 2007, as the New York startup scene was just forming around us, we created Red Antler to be a creative services company that could be a partner to entrepreneurs. And our belief back then, which was not um, really the ethos of the time, is that the sooner you start thinking about brand, the more set up for success you'll be. And that you can actually start building a brand before you even launch and, and that you should. So that was really the vision for Red Antler was how do we create a company that can work hand in hand with entrepreneurs to help bring their vision to life through the entire customer journey. And what that means is we launch businesses. You know, we partner with exciting new companies to put those things out into the world. Um, you mentioned some examples of that, you know, and we're getting involved, you know, eight months before launch and sort of creating the entire experience for the brand idea. Yeah, I mean, and some of that, like I said, I'm very familiar with Allbirds, and and you were in at that from the beginning. And part of what what Allbirds really was was about sustainable materials and environmental, and the message was as important as the product for sure. Um, and I think you also helped with the design of the box that the shoes came in, and all sorts of things like that. So you really were in at the beginning on that, right? Yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly collaborative process, and as is true with nearly every entrepreneur that we work with, Tim and Joey, the founder of Allbirds, the founders of Allbirds, had really strong vision for what they wanted that brand to become, and we were there to provide you know, an extra perspective and really help them bring that vision to life. So we all rolled up our sleeves together and had a lot of good debate about, you know, okay, this is these are all the ideas that we want to express, and this is what the brand stands for. How do we sort of create this incredibly evocative and compelling world that people are going to want to be a part of. So let me, um, I'm, I'm speaking with Emily Hayward, who's the co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler. She's telling us a little bit about Red Antler's innovative strategy for working with brand new brands to develop what are today's brands. And my co-host, Americus Reed, has just joined us. Americus, hello. Thank you for coming in. Hey, Barbara. How are you doing? <laughs> Good to have you. Of course, Americans Reed, who's the, uh, you think I know this by heart, but the Whitney M. Young Jr. <laughs> Professor of Marketing and Brand Identity Theorist. Thank you for coming, Americus. I'm sure you just heard, we're talking to Emily, and she's telling us a little bit about the innovative strategy of Jade uh, Red Antler um, and how they get in at the, with the brand from the beginning. Uh, and, and it's really a very different approach from classical branding, which is what she and her co co-founder J.B. Osborne had worked in before they started Red Antler. It's very cool. I want to jump in, Emily, and ask you some questions about this because I think people often just don't, I mean, we take it for granted because we live in this branding world, but people often don't understand the power of brand as a really robust gravitational concept that just draws people in and can really be the difference between uh, choosing a particular product over another. And so, it, it, you know, as you're doing work with startups, Barbara was mentioning this with respect to Allbirds and others, other brands you've worked with. What do you notice as a, when, when you talk to entrepreneurs, what I see out there is entrepreneurs often are in this mindset of, well, I got to basically land grab. I got to just, I've got to get a sale. I got to just generate traction. And oftentimes they don't really, they aren't paying as much attention to the brand development piece on day zero uh, that perhaps they could be. It, are you noticing this as well? And do you see, how do you educate them as an entrepreneurial sort of mindset, you know, to make sure that they're paying attention to this very, uh, perhaps less understood asset that is the brand that can create so much powerful loyalty amongst consumers? What do you see out there? 
You're absolutely right that we have to do quite a bit of education. Although I will say I've seen a shift over the past decade. You know, I think that in 2007, when we started Red Antler, most people felt that the right way to launch was as lean as possible. You know, get it out there, test product market fit. Brand is something you worry about sort of once you've started to gain that traction, once you raise your Series A. But in the beginning, it's all about iteration and experimentation and flexibility. I think we are now living in a time where the barriers to launch a business have gotten so low from a technology standpoint that within a month, I'm not exaggerating, we will sometimes speak to three different teams who are doing identical things, not just overlapping, but identical. <laughs> because of how short that cycle has gotten, you know, more and more entrepreneurs realize that their competitive edge, their moat, if you will, is going to be brand. That, you know, sometimes I define brand as why should people care about this thing? Like if you really have to boil down what brand means to like one sentence, that's a way to think about it. It's not just what are you? It's why should people care? And the idea itself is frankly no longer enough. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I, you know, one of the things that I think about just from my own work, I do a lot of work in retail, um, is the product is a commodity. So the pro, you know, like you're saying, the ideas are virtually the same. And some of the things that differentiate is brand. The other thing that differentiates is experience, customer experience. But a lot of your branding is around a customer experience. And I think you bake that right into what you mean by brand. Is that right? A hundred percent. And I do think that if people think brand is just an aesthetic layer that sits on top that makes my identical product look sexier and cooler than the other identical product, that's not deep enough either. You know, for us, brand is really about a lens through which to view all of your decisions. And it's really about delivering on an idea and an emotion at every step of the journey. So the entire experience is brand. The product itself is part of your brand. You can't just make it look shiny and new and expect that people are going to fall for it because I think consumers are too smart these days. And if they like dig under the surface and there's not substance there, they're going to just as quickly move on to the next thing. So is this what your new book is about or? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I like the title, Obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> People love from day one. Yes. Obsessed is about exactly what we are discussing. It's about the new rules of branding. It's about how companies have had to adapt to this point in time where consumers just have so much choice, so much knowledge, so much power. You know, it used to be we would just buy the detergent our moms bought because we didn't have any other options and we were in the drugstore and that's what was available. Now you can go online and find, you know, 18 different sustainable versions that use, you know, fruit and come in, you know, zero waste packaging and, you know, we're all going to have different, you know, claims around efficacy and it's just a totally different world and companies have had to respond accordingly. So, even though the subtitle is building a brand people love from day one, you know, it really applies, I think, to every company. And I think the lessons are just as relevant, if not more, to legacy brands who need to catch up. 
you know, I want to ask you about that. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you if, if you minded if I threw threw you a curveball, because I just saw today some um, data about what's happened to consumer packaged goods in, under COVID shopping. So I know that uh, this is anecdotally what I'm sure most people feel, but I've seen the data and it's absolutely what's happened. So, for example, because everybody, you know, all the stores are closed and you're sitting at home, people aren't shopping in restaurants and, you know, and doing all the things that you would normally do. And so, as you might expect, the market share of legacy consumer packaged goods brands have gone way up. These are brands we started to write off, you know, like when the Dollar Shave Club put Gillette on the defensive or all the organic food that put Campbell's on the defensive. All of those legacy brands are now seeing surges in their market share. And you can estimate a lot of reasons why that happened, but it is literally happening. I've seen the data. The other thing that I've seen about the data is that much of this new purchasing is coming from new users. It's not just you know people who used to use the product way back when and now are going back home to Campbell's. It's brand new users who really never used Campbell's before, as an example, and now they're buying soup. And I was wondering what your intuition would be as a brand expert for how to build loyalty from these, this opportunity came up because of COVID, new users are buying these products, but how do you develop a brand that people love with this as a legacy history. Do you have an answer to that or am I throwing you too much of a curveball? No, I love this question. I find that stat so fascinating and it actually brings me a ton of joy because a lot of times, you know, when I'm addressing audiences of marketers who do work at these legacy brands, you know, their question tends to be like, are we just screwed? Like, is there no hope for us? And my answer is always, that's absolutely not the case. You know, if you think about probably the biggest buzzword in the startup landscape being authenticity, What's more authentic than a brand that's been doing this for you know decades and decades, if not a century, right? Um, so I think the authenticity is there, the story is there. A lot of times the quality is there, but they're not doing a good enough job taking credit for how they actually do tap into the values of the modern consumer. And I think that this is a massive opportunity that they should not waste. And I think that a lot of these brands are guilty of taking their consumers for granted because they used to control, you know, all the means of distribution and the means of communication with not, you know, you used to be able to have to afford a TV commercial and get into like the buyer at a store and that's no longer true. But I think now that they're finding their way into homes, how do you surpass people's expectations? How do you continue to over deliver? How do you not just fall back into a pattern of assuming that, you know, you're the only name in the space and therefore they're going to keep buying you? Because I think that's where a lot of these brands have fallen short historically. Let me let me just build on this point though, because I love Barbara's question. Because when you look at a legacy brand like Campbell's Soup, Emily, you you know that a long time ago there was a bunch of consumers who grew up with it and they have these memories of that red can and being at grandma's house and you know the winter time and the soup being poured into the pot and all these things. And these younger consumers that Barbara's talking about who are introduced to the brand as a function of kind of COVID emergency, 
Do you think they are going to have that same potential type of connection? Because to me, the challenge would be I'm bringing in these new people. Now I have a decision. Like, do I go back to this leveraging of this old iconic legacy brand that I had that is Andy Warhol and this iconic soup? Or do I tell a different story with these new consumers who I happen to gather, you know, their attention on what's how do I make that decision? What's your advice to to that specific kind of uh, situation? I don't think nostalgia alone is enough to build a long lasting relationship with new consumers. You know, I think that we see nostalgia goes in cycles. You know, right now everyone's excited about the 90s again, but that's going to shift, you know, as soon as we're into the next decade. So I would not try to sort of just like rest on those laurels. And I think for a lot of these packaged food brands, it's actually slightly more complicated than even just branding because it has to do with the product itself and health trends, and have those, those have shifted. So to me, the, the time that these brands started to fall behind was actually quite some time ago. And, you know, for look, I, I don't know a whole lot about the operations at Campbell's, but I, I think they need to release new products that are more in line with today's consumer's health profile. And right oh, now- I, I, I have to defend Campbell's because they did. You know, they obviously saw that. And a lot of their, even their condensed soup, which is the famous Andy Warhol packaging that America's is talking about, is made with real vegetables and stuff. There are some CPG firms that really don't have the right products. So, for example, J&J had dyes and scents in their baby products, and modern parents don't like that. That was a little bit... They've changed, but they took a little while to adapt. But actually, Campbell's always was made with organic foods, um, but people didn't trust it anymore because they wouldn't, you know, they were walking around the perimeter of the grocery store and soup in a can just didn't, you know, resonate with them. Well, that's even better. Here I am having no idea that they did this. And this is news to me. So clearly they're not doing enough. Not that I'm the only consumer in the world, but you know, I pay attention to this stuff. I actually worked on Progresso when I worked in advertising. So well, I was, Progresso, the blue can versus the red can, those are the soup wars. That, that was our big rival. We ran a, a campaign for years, slamming <laughs> The fact that I have literally no idea that they've done this product update to me is a sign that they're not taking enough credit for the shifts they've made. And I think that like canned soup could be really relevant right now, not just in coronavirus times, but like, you know, it's convenient, it's easy, it's a healthy, hearty meal. Like there's a lot to love about canned soup, but not if you feel like it's just a can of sodium and, you know, preservatives. Let me reintroduce you. I'm Barbara Kahn and I'm here with America's Reed and we're both in our Zoom kitchens and living rooms and bedrooms. Uh, And we're bringing you Marketing Matters a brand new content today. And today we're joined by Emily Hayward, who's the co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler. And she's the author of the book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. And she is famous for her building up of digitally native vertical brands, but she was just talking about how some of her lessons also apply for legacy brands, because it's really about being obsessed with building a brand people love, not just and new brands necessarily. But your history with Red Antler really is on these digitally native vertical brands. And that is some of the reasons you are known as one of the iconic agencies within that world. What do you think about today and digitally native vertical? You know, you started the show off saying you got, you were working with three companies that had literally the exact same concept. And what's going to differentiate them in some sense is 
is the branding um, and the customer experience. What is your prognosis, given that we're in COVID and given the economic situation for some of these new startups? Should people like pack it in and go back and work for P&G and Campbell's or is there still opportunity for um, some of these startups to win? Yeah, well, just to clarify, we would never work on three identical companies at once. I would say we would meet with and choose one. But actually, to use that point to answer your question, I think the businesses who are launching with true value baked in will absolutely survive this time and move on to thrive. I think that you are right. We've seen a huge wave of businesses kind of spin up overnight, and many of them don't actually improve on what came before. And it's just about a slick Instagram ad and a nice looking logo and some, you know, clever headlines. And I think those are going to fade away because ultimately, you know, consumers are smarter than that. And you might be able to draw them in once, but to create that longevity and really become a part of someone's life, you need to be offering something that's substantively better. And it's, delivers, you know, true value, whether that's in the form of, you know, better convenience, better service, you know, a better product, more sustainable, whatever it is, it needs to be something people can really feel. And I think the businesses that are doing that are absolutely going to make it through this time and continue to thrive. So you brought up an issue that a lot of people are talking about, particularly because of the hit it's taken in COVID, which is sustainability. And a lot of these digitally native vertical brands, these startups that have made it, have had, including Allbirds, um, have had this as one of their mandates. One of the things they are doing better is making the earth better, making the world a better place. That it's not just about product you know, as a commodity, but really in, improving our earth. But now with COVID, some of these sustainability um, issues are in question. Have you had to address any of those issues? I mean, I think that's in reference to the fact that everybody's flocking back to, you know, anti-bacterial sprays, right? And like single-use plastic because they're afraid of, I mean, to me, that's a short-term backslide in a moment of kind of trauma and difficulty. I would absolutely bet the long run on a move towards sustainability. Like, I think right now we're in a moment of time where everyone became extreme germaphobes. I don't think that's going to last. And I think if we look at not just from a commercial standpoint, but like ethically, like both sort of what a business should be doing right now, I would find it very foolish for a business to be launching today that does not have some message and genuine like offering around sustainability baked in. Yeah. Let me let me actually also build on what Barbara's saying as well, because I want to get your take on this. Obviously, we would be uh, quite remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the notion of branding and how social justice and the decision to bring that into part of the conversation with your brand uh, in the, you know, what we've been seeing recently in terms of brands really coming out and taking strong political stances or ideological stances. What are your thoughts on this? And, and you know, maybe is there a different kind of analysis that occurs for digitally native brands versus traditional brands or and and or what is your overall take on this should should brands be doing this it seems like they've made the decision that this is the right thing to be doing for their long-term health what are your thoughts on on these kinds of issues because I, like barbara said it's very interesting right at the yeah. end of the day you know anybody can make a, a tub of ice cream but if ben and jerry's is going to come out and say hey you know we're going to be very very clear on what we stand for here 
uh, that's a decision. And so what are your thoughts on, on building that purpose and social justice uh, element into what brands are doing? I think it's essential. I think brands absolutely should be doing that. Um, I think it's long overdue. I think in many ways, we're living in a society where corporations actually have more power to affect change than government. And I think they set the stage for what people expect and ultimately government follows. So to me, I'm thrilled to see this new wave of brand activism. I hope that it continues. Unlike the germophobia, I hope that this is actually not just a moment in time, but something that fundamentally alters our corporate landscape. But what I would say is I think the brands that are trying to just sort of take credit for having an opinion, but aren't backing it up with action are getting called out as they should. And I, my rule for the brands that we work on is that it's okay to want to take credit for your good acts, but your actions have to outweigh your words and not the other way around. Along those lines of talking about timely events and what do you think about them, <laughs> what do you think about um, this, this move to omni-channel and customer-centric data and personalized brand experiences? And I mean, so part of it is what you're talking about brand, but brand now means something different to each individual. And if I'm going to personalize the experience of, of your history with my brand, how does that reconcile with the global brand image? You know, I think that omni-channel is less about tailoring your brand values and your like core brand idea, depending on where it's showing up. And it's more about just personalizing the experience and, you know, getting to know your consumers and like serving them up the right products at the right time. I mean, my feeling is that we haven't even scratched the surface of what can be achieved there. I think there are very few brands that are genuinely doing omni-channel well. Um, and I think we've got a long way to go actually in terms of the promise that that offers. But the way I think about it is, it's all the more important for a brand to be clear on its North Star because it needs to show up in so many channels and because it needs to flex its messaging depending on who and where it's appearing to. So to me, that means even more you need to be clear about like who you stand, what you stand for, why it matters, you know, what is this all laddering up to so you can have that flexibility and that stretch without seeming like you just don't know what you're doing or that, you know, you don't mean stand for anything at all. That's actually a great answer. I really like that answer. I give you an A on that answer. Oh, like, thank you. <laughs> let, me, let me just throw one. We only have a minute left, but let me just throw one more question at you to see how you feel about this. What do you feel about the influencers and the KOLs and all of that? And how do they help build brand? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think for the right brand, it can be a really powerful tool. I don't think it's a silver bullet. I think a lot of money gets wasted. But, you know, when you see an influencer that has an, to use my own buzzword from before, an authentic connection to the brand, and you can tell they're not just slapping on, you know, hashtag ad because they wanted to make a buck, I think it's a great way to discover new products. And, you know, there's certain people that people love following and hearing from, and it's just another excellent channel if used correctly. And do you work with them when you do branding for your clients or they, that's independent? No, typically that's handled through a PR firm that we're working in close partnership with, but we don't have like an in-house influencer strategy. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. And where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work? They can go to my website, emilyhayward.com, H-E-Y-W-A-R-D.
Great, thank you. And be sure to check out Emily's book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 